who's long dead and gone. But today is not like those other days. Today's different. Because the one that we recognize, Jesus, the Christ, is anything but dead and gone. In fact, he is alive and well. He's risen. That is a fact that we cannot attribute to any other great figure in history. All of the other religious leaders in our past, all of the uh, other political leaders, social reformers, great innovators and humanitarians, the one common truth that they all share is that they all died and stayed dead. They're all dead. That's what makes the Christian faith unique from all other religions. The reality that the one that we follow not only died, but he rose from death and walked out of his tomb very much alive. He is alive today. That is uh, why this day is different from any other holiday or observance. This is the only day that we celebrate resurrection. The day our hero, our savior, defeated death. And not just for himself, but for all of us who choose to accept the life that only he can offer us. And this is a profound mystery revealed to us in scripture and ultimately in our own hearts by the Holy Spirit. In the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he tells the Ephesian Christians to pray for him. He says that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, Ephesians six nineteen. What's the big mystery? Again, he he explains it to the Ephesians. Paul says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. Look. This was big news, okay? This was, this was really big news for the people of Paul's day, and it's just as big today. Why? Because it means that all of us, regardless of our ethnicity, our uh, upbringing, our socioeconomic status, our religious traditions in which we were raised, regardless of where we come from or what we've done up to this point in our lives, every one of us, has the opportunity, if we choose to accept it, to share in the inheritance that is eternal life with Jesus Christ after this life is over. And whether or not you've ever heard that statement before, that truth about the gospel, whether you've heard it or not, or maybe you have, maybe you've heard it many times in your life, but you've chosen not to respond to it, either way, as long as you have breath in your body, As long as you have a pulse and enough brain function to process a thought, you can choose to respond to the voice of Jesus Christ, a voice that is simply inviting every one of us to come follow me. He invites every one of us to come and follow him. And the reason that offer is continually on the table for us until we die is because he rose from death and he's alive and well right now. Our kids are uh, having an egg hunt, probably, as I speak. But make no mistake, this day is not about a fuzzy rabbit and chocolate eggs. It's all about our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he's done for us and the ramifications of those actions. For those of you who have been here over the past few weeks, you know that we've been on a journey together with Jesus and his disciples as they've made their way by foot from Galilee to Jerusalem 
across the Kidron Valley, through Samaria and Bethany and Bethpage, and now into the great city. As so many were flocking to Jerusalem because it was Passover week and they were going to share the Passover meal and celebrate that Passover celebration. But far more than simply celebrating Passover, Jesus has responded to the call of the Father here to fulfill his destiny. He's cleansed the temple. He's answered the challenges of his critics. He's prophesied over the city. And all the while, he's continued teaching his followers. We've been on this journey with him in this sermon series. And now his time on earth is drawing to a close. As we look at the culmination of his earthly ministry in this final sermon entitled Resurrection in our Kingdom Come series of messages. So if you have your Bibles... And you want to turn with me uh, to the gospel according to Matthew chapter 26. And in just a moment, we'll start uh, reading from verse 26. We'll also have these passages on the screen for you if you'd rather read it that way. And just to set the scene here, uh, Jesus and his disciples are now gathered in a room together. In a home inside the city. It's Thursday evening during the Passover week. Liturgical churches refer to this as Maundy Thursday. Maundy is a word derived from a Latin meaning commandment. And it's associated with Jesus' statement in John 13, uh, 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I had loved you, you also are to love one another. And this is what he said to them just before he got down on his knees and washed their feet. Traditionally, Passover is always on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, which extended from sundown on Thursday to sundown on Friday. And so here they are on this Thursday evening gathered for one last meal around a table on that, on that night just before Jesus submits himself to a horrible death on the cross. And before we continue with the message today, I think it's not only appropriate that we share in this communion meal as Jesus commanded us to in commemoration of a sacrifice, but maybe it will help, uh, help us frame the story in our minds a little bit better this morning if we take the bread and cup along with Jesus and his disciples on that fateful Thursday evening. And so, if you would, Kayla, would you come? I've asked Kayla to sing a song for us, and what we're going to do, a little different than normal, as she begins to play, if you would leave your seats and come forward and come down the center aisle maybe and take a piece of bread and a cup of juice and then you can walk back to your seat maybe down the outside aisles if that's easier and then Passover Seder or the Passover meal that night certainly consisted of much more than a wafer of bread and a small cup of juice we don't know exactly which foods were on the menu that night but traditionally there was roasted lamb unleavened bread bitter herbs dipped in salt water and vinegar Uh, roasted egg, a wide assortment of greens and maybe even olives and figs and other fruit, along with two types of warm red wine, a ritual wine and non-ritual wine. And they would take wine at four different times, four cups throughout the meal. And each item on the menu had a very specific symbolism. The bitter herbs represented the suffering of the Jews in Egypt. Uh, The salad of fruit and greens represented the mortar that the Israelites used to make bricks. The salt water symbolized the tears and sweat of years of enslavement. 
the four cups of wine represented the four promises of redemption for his people and on and on and on. If you've ever been to a traditional Jewish Passover Seder, particularly a Messianic Seder, it's an amazing thing. It's a rich experience and you learn so much more about what was happening there. It wasn't simply a meal and yet it was quite a meal. Everything on the table had a very specific meaning relating, of course, to the deliverance of the Jews out of Egypt. Whatever the specific foods were that evening, these disciples of Christ uh, were a tight-knit group of friends, save one, along with Christ. Without a doubt, they were reclined around a table full of rich food and wine. A feast that we know now not only looked back to the deliverance of God's people out of bondage from Egypt, but a meal that also looked forward to the sacrifice of Christ to deliver all who call upon his name from the bondage of sin. This was the most significant meal ever eaten in all of history and remains so today until we gather with our Savior at the marriage supper of the Lamb upon his return. And the word says we'll feast with him once again. It's described in Revelation chapter 19. And can't you just picture it now? These men who had been through so much together, they had given up nearly everything they had and walked many a hard mile, sharing everything with one another through all of the miracles, persecutions, hunger, storms, through all of the confrontations with the Jewish leaders, all of the late nights around a campfire warming themselves after many difficult hours of teaching and healings and casting out demons. I mean, everything that they experienced together, all that they shared, and here they are, the culmination of that ministry, finally, quietly resting around a table with Jesus before a beautiful feast as their best friend and leader the one that they'd given up their former lives for completely, the one that they'd followed all this time, begins to tell them that his time has come. Their journey together on this earth is drawing to a close. Everything, in fact, is about to change. He says, I will not eat a meal like this again until I return to the earth a second time when he will right all of the wrongs in this world and gather his people to himself. And can't you imagine the wrenching of their hearts as Jesus explains that one of their own will betray him and that before the night is over, they will all abandon him. The life that they've devoted themselves to will very soon and never again be the same. The Passover feast was typically a great celebration, but this Passover was very different. For even as Jesus and his friends feasted together, the inevitability of an innocent man, their best friend and leader dying, was hanging in the air like a dark cloud. And Jesus, surely agonizing over what he knows is about to befall him, says to his friends, as they finish the meal together, he says, do this in remembrance of me. In other words, remember me. Every time you have this meal, Remember everything that we've been through. Remember all that I've taught you. Don't don't forget how much I love you. Eat this bread. Drink the wine and remember me. Luke recorded that fateful evening in his account of the gospel in chapter 22. He wrote in verse 17, and he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, take this and divide it 
among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's drink together. And so it was. They ate and drank that final meal together that night. And then as Matthew records, they sang a hymn of worship before leaving that room. And what a beautiful picture of the body of Christ, even in the face of the ultimate sacrifice, joining their voices together in praise to the one true God. That's why we so often sing or have special music during our times of communion, because we not only remember who he is, what he means to us, all that he's done for us, but we always take time to thank him, worship him for what he's about to do in our own lives. And then as you may know, they leave the home that they're in and they head out of the city to the Mount of Olives to pray. Jesus is arrested and right on cue, all of his friends make a beeline out the back door. They desert him. Alone, he's put on trial, accused of nothing legitimate and sentenced to die. This is the darkest and yet the greatest night in world history. The Son of God, blameless, sinless, utter perfection in human form is going to die in the very worst way. He will suffer a fate that he could never deserve for a world full of people who could never be worthy of such a gift. Okay, let's pick up our story now in Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 26. And speaking of Pilate, the Roman governor and judge, Matthew says, Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Okay, Roman flogging or scourging was a horrifically cruel punishment. Those condemned to it were tied to a post and beaten with a leather whip that was interwoven with pieces of bone and metal, which would tear through the victim's skin, that soft tissue, who would expose bones most of the time, and according to records we have even intestines, the inner organs. In fact, in many cases, the flogging itself was fatal, and in this case, the Romans made certain to scourge Jesus nearly to death so that he wouldn't remain alive on the cross after sundown because Jewish custom dictated that crucified bodies should be taken down before evening, especially before the Sabbath, which began at sundown on Friday. And as horrible as it is, to have to contemplate all that he went through for us. Every step of the process was a fulfillment of what was prophesied about him in various scriptures throughout the Old and New Testaments leading up to these events. Okay, let's continue. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Roman soldiers in Jerusalem at this point in history were were well known. They were infamous 
for playing cruel games with condemned prisoners. They often would dress the accused in these wild costumes. And if you go back and read uh, some of the historical writings, they had a huge game board that they would place the prisoners on and use them as game pieces and play with them before they would kill them. Sadistic games to degrade and further punish those condemned to die. So here we see between 120 and 200 soldiers gathered before Jesus to abuse and torture him. And they press a mock crown of these long, you know, very sharp thorns down into his scalp. They put a fake scepter in his hand made of reed and they put a royal colored robe on him and pretend to honor him as king as they spit on him and beat him. Of course, the irony is profound. As the Roman soldiers mocked Jesus as king, little did they know they were standing in the very presence of the king of kings. Now let's jump down to verse 45, and we'll keep reading. Jesus has now been nailed to a cross. Even in that, the soldiers continue to mistreat and mock him. They take away his clothes. They offer him a drink. And you can imagine the dehydration that Jesus must have been experiencing through all of the beating and torture. There must have been an overwhelming desire for something to abate his thirst. And he asked for something, but the drink offered was wine mixed with gall. Gall was a a bitter herb that in some cases was poisonous, so obviously he couldn't drink it. And here he is, humiliated, mocked, beaten, tortured, hanging on the threshold of death. Let's read verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Ali, Ali, lema sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah is coming to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. It was the darkest night in all of human history, you know, and yet without it, we'd have no course for celebration in our own lives today. Why? Because you cannot have a resurrection without a death. In order for Jesus to rise from the grave and definitively prove his divine nature, thereby sealing once and for all you know, the salvation available to all who believe he first had to die, right? There can be no resurrection without a death, and that applies to us as well. Let's continue reading at verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. you think so? Okay, let's not miss what was happening here at this moment. Matthew tends to write topically in his gospel in his gospel account rather than chronologically all the time. So he jumps around a bit. And we see him here describing events that occurred after Jesus' resurrection, which itself hasn't been chronicled up to this point. But here Matthew's giving us a little preview of some of the supernatural events that occurred at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
in verses 52 and 53, he says, the tombs of many of the Old Testament saints and probably some of those intertestamental uh, Jews, godly Jews, those who lived in the 400 years of biblical silence between the Old and New Testaments, their tombs were opened. And then a whole bunch of these crusty old dead guys get up at the onset of Jesus' own resurrection and walk out of their tombs re-embodied. They were walking around with new resurrection bodies, not only as testimonies to Jesus' own resurrection, but as witnesses to this cataclysmic event that would forever divide all of history between the old covenant that God established between himself and his people, which was sealed with the blood of animals, and the new covenant, which was sealed by the blood of Christ. A covenant completely at the mercy of a resurrection, which was completely dependent upon a death. See, there is no resurrection without a death. That truth applied to Jesus, it applied to the Old Testament saints, and it applies to all of us. At this point, we cannot afford to overlook today. We cannot afford to overlook this point today in our lives. Our salvation in Christ is a spiritual resurrection. The Bible says that before we place our faith and trust in Christ, before we become a Christian, we're what? We're dead in our sins. That is to say, spiritually, we're dead and dying. But when we repent of our sins, turn from our former selves, deny ourselves, the Bible says crucify our flesh, our fleshly nature, and follow Christ, he gives us new life. We become new. That's why we say born again. That's why Christians use that phrase, because we've been given new life. We've been spiritually resurrected. And all that sounds great. Except that so much of the church today, at least in Western civilization, has a tendency to overlook the part about dying first. Because who wants to talk about that, right? I'd rather just keep my life the way that it is without dying to myself and add Jesus in with it. That's a win-win. If I'm essentially a good person, I should be able to just have faith in Jesus and add him into my already pretty good life. At least that seems reasonable enough, except that's not what scripture teaches us. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Galatians 5.24 And he, meaning Jesus, said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Luke 9.23 For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Mark 8.35 I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. 1 Corinthians 15.31 And whoever does not take his cross, the cross symbolizes crucifixion, of course, and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 38. He bore himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 1 Peter 2, 24. You get any idea? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. 
How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Romans 6, 1 through 5. I can keep going here. I think you get the picture. There is no resurrection without a death. We must die to ourselves if we are to live in Christ. But that's not what much of the church is teaching today. Because it's quite an uncomfortable doctrine. We teach the resurrection part because that's the happy part. But how can we leave out the hard part? We cannot simply add Jesus to our former life and call ourselves born again. We must first deny ourselves, take up our cross, and be crucified with Christ. It doesn't sound very pleasant. And to all of you who have experienced it, you know that it isn't pleasant at all. Paul said, I die every day. Have you ever had to give up on something that you really, really wanted? Something that you had your sights set on, your heart tied up in, you know, a desire or a dream, a goal, a plan, maybe a relationship. And for whatever reason, you had to let that go and let it die. That can be very difficult, very painful. That's why Paul said, I've suffered the loss of all things in Philippians 3.8. What was he talking about? Just before he made that statement, he lists all the great things about his former life. He says, I was a leader. I was respected. I had position and authority. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That was saying something. In fact, he goes on to say that as far as the law was concerned, he says, I was blameless. In other words, I was a really good person. According to the standards of the world, I had it all together. I had position and respect, money, power. And then he says this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, I can't be good enough but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. But listen to this next part. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3, 7 through 11. Look, I know this isn't a very popular message, but I'm telling you this because I love you. We cannot simply pepper our old lives with a little Jesus here and a little church there and fool ourselves into thinking that we've changed. I know that, by the way, not only because that's what Scripture teaches, but because that's what I try to do myself sometimes. Sometimes I think I can let the old Rob have his way and just smooth over the rough edges with some Jesus, but it never works. Paul said, I die every day. And so must we. And if you're fighting that battle, you're not alone. Every day I have to choose to die to myself and live for Christ. And you know what? Some days I make it. And some days I don't. Because sometimes I like myself more than I love Jesus. That's just the truth. So what then? 
then I must repent, die to myself, take up my cross and follow him. It's a daily choice. This is the suffering that Jesus and the apostles talked about in scripture. It's one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith, suffering with Christ in order to be resurrected with him. And we cannot leave that out of our walk. If you want to experience new life in Christ, you must first die to yourself because there cannot be a resurrection without a death. Now then, let's pick up the story at verse 57. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Excuse me, I'm on 51. 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary was there sitting opposite the tomb. This man Joseph was a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin, so he was quite influential, and yet he stood against what the establishment had done to Jesus, but because of his stature in the Jewish community, he had access to Pilate. And so he asked for the body of Jesus and has him buried in his own tomb, uh, the tomb of a rich man, which was the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 53, 9, over 700 years earlier. Okay, let's keep reading. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Okay, so Jesus' body is locked up here tighter than Fort Knox. There's no way anyone is going to sneak in and steal that body. Let's keep reading. Chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. This is the dynamic duo of Marys. These two women remain so courageously faithful to Jesus in life and in death. And I think it's worth noting that because of their faithfulness and courage, their undaunted determination to be near Jesus, that they were greatly rewarded as the first to be reunited with him. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. <laughs> and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Okay, you not only 
Can't have a resurrection without a death. But the second point, and I'll be very brief, that I just want to discuss with you before we leave today, is that you cannot have a resurrection without Jesus Christ. Jesus rose from the dead. That's a fact. And he's alive today. But of course, from the moment that he left that tomb, there's been a great conspiracy to cover up that fact. We see it here in the last few verses of our text. We'll just read it, uh, three or four more verses. Starting at verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Okay, faced with the reality of Jesus' resurrection, the religious leaders once again are forced to conspire together to preserve their religious and political influence. So they hatch a plan to pay off the Roman guards who face possible execution for dereliction of duty. You know, not carrying out your assignment while on guard duty particularly while occupying foreign territory, was one of the most serious offenses that a Roman soldier could commit at the time. It was a big deal. So you can imagine the Jewish religious leaders are afraid of losing their power. The guards are afraid of losing their heads. So this conspiracy is a win-win. We pay the guards, spread a lie, and this inconvenience of Jesus coming back from the dead simply goes away. Except that he didn't go away. Of course, the lie that Jesus' followers simply snuck in and stole his body is still being peddled today by many who choose not to believe in Christ. As if some fishermen and a tax collector could have made their way past trained Roman guards and rolled this massive stone away without being noticed while they were taking a, a nap and then carry off Jesus' body all the while remaining undetected, right? The the truth is, according to the scriptures and many, many witnesses at the time, some who came out of the tombs and millions of witnesses throughout history and around the world today who testify to the very real, very active life of Christ at work within them, Jesus is still alive and he's not going away. We know in our hearts and minds and we believe in faith that he did walk out of that tomb. And as mentioned earlier, that's one of the unique aspects of the one that we follow compared to religious leaders and other faiths. They're all dead or dying. Jesus Christ conquered death. And we not only serve a risen Savior, but we have the hope of eternal resurrection, eternal life with him and with each other because he did not remain in that tomb. There isn't one other religious figure in all of history who got up and walked out of their tomb or their gravesite. Jesus is the only one who did not stay dead. Therefore, he is the only one who has the power and authority to offer us new life. With him, all these other dead guys can't offer us anything but maybe a history lesson. Jesus Christ and him alone is living and breathing and ruling and reigning from heaven right now. And when we die to ourselves and place our faith in him, and choose daily to follow him, his Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of us, and then his rule and reign, his dominion, his kingdom is established in our lives. And then consequently, we have that same authority and power living inside of us, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead now living in us. 
And it raises us to new life. And what a life it is. What a life it is. Do you want everlasting joy? Indescribable peace. Unconditional love. Absolute purpose and fulfillment in your life. Those things can only be found in Jesus Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great author and man of God, once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That is the path. In fact, that is the only path to resurrection. Let's pray.